This evening we are back in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. It's a blessing to be here, to sit under God's Word and to consider it. This is a, um, I told someone before the service, this is a, is a, is a kind of a dense text. It's rich and uh, kind of like a, a dessert that you want to savor. We're going to try to take small bites and, and savor them as we go. We're just going to be looking at five verses, verses 10 through 14. Um, it builds upon the message you heard last Sunday night. And um, we, are, we are grateful for God's Word. In the previous verses that, that uh, Kurt preached so well last week, um, the Apostle Paul has established that the true children of Abraham are those that have uh, faith similar to that of faithful Abraham. Paul said in verse 6 in that section, uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, "...Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness." Abraham's trust was not in his own obedience, but in the promises of God given to him. And Paul continues his argument from more Old Testament passages, and he just, he just packs them together here in these verses. And he um, talks about the blessing of faith and contrasts that with the futility of trying to obey the law. The title of this sermon that I've chosen is The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, and that really is the substance of what Paul is teaching us here. But he does that by way of contrast, and therefore the points of our sermon have to do with the curses of the law, because that's really a a theme that he has woven in as he is showing us that justification, we can only be made right with God through faith in Christ's finished work. And we'll consider this text under two points, the curse of the law and redemption from the curse. So as we approach God's word, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the proclamation of his word, and then we'll read our text. Let us bow. Lord God, we need you, and Lord, we, we thank you for your word, and, and what a glorious truth is contained here in the middle of this epistle. So Lord, give us grace to hear it. Give us hearts that are hungry for you. Lord, help us to receive it as your very word because that's what it is. So therefore, Lord, we sit under its authority. We recognize the inerrancy of your word, your faithfulness, the necessity of it. And Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in, Jesus, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Imagine with me, if you will, and, and protect. Per- Perhaps we should tailor this illustration that comes straight out of the Old Testament to the children. So just imagine with me, young people, that you were one of 
the Israelites who had just crossed into the promised land. After your parents had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, you were part of that that massive group of people, likely over a million people, that miraculously crossed on the dry ground through the Jordan River into the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. And Moses had given particular instructions, and he had said, I want want you to assemble on these two mountains that are opposite one another. One is Mount Ebal, and one is Mount Gerizim. And you are to assemble on them. So you, at your parents' instruction, you you go to the place where you have have been assigned and you go with with, uh, your own tribe and and five other tribes and you assemble on Mount Ebal. And then the, the other half of the children of Israel or thereabouts assemble on this other mountain and you're wondering, what is going on? Perhaps you ask your parents and say, what am I supposed to do? And they say, well, just do what we do. And so what... Of course, is happening there. If those of you that remember that story, they were there to recite the blessings of the covenant and to be warned about the curses of breaking that covenant. And so you would hear the Levites, then they would they would pronounce a curse for the breaking of the covenant. And the first one that they said was, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people would answer, Amen. They would go on, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people would once again say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people say, Amen. And one after the other, the Levites would rehearse these statements of curses for law-breaking. And one after the other, you along with the children of Israel there on Mount Ebal would shout, Amen. This memorable event happens and is recorded for us in Deuteronomy 27. And God used it in the life of his people to impress upon them the importance of obeying the law. God is holy and righteous and just and his law reflects that. Conformity to his will and ways require complete obedience on the part of his people. And remember that as we've already alluded to the fact that this was one of the first activities that happened when God's people came into the land following 400 plus years of slavery and 40 years of wilderness wandering. It was certainly a momentous occasion and it served to show them the contrast between the blessing of obedience and the curse of disobedience. But Paul uses it here. He alludes to this and he quotes from a section of Deuteronomy 27 and he uses it to show the Galatians what they knew or what they should have known that no one can perfectly and fully keep the law. Now the Israelites knew this and that is why they knew of the sacrificial system that God had provided for them that Moses had had told them about because God had given it to him to pass on to the people. That was the way in which their sins were atoned for. The law served to show the holiness of God and to serve as a mirror to show the people their sinfulness as it does for us today. And at the very end of this ritual that I've described, the Levites would say this, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And once again the people would shout amen. And that's the verse, that is the verse that Paul quotes here in our text this evening. 
And that really serves as a summary statement of, what he, of the argument that he is building. Paul paraphrases it by saying, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is saying that full and perfect obedience is to the law is what the law requires. Jesus taught that as well because at the end of Matthew 5, he says, you shall be perfect. You should be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Now you, would, you might say, what about those Old Testament sacrifices? Weren't those a way of, of atoning? Yes, but remember, Christ has come. Those sacrifices and that system is null and void. And Paul is teaching the Galatians. And remember he said in verse 6, You who have begun with Christ, why do you continue and seek to complete your salvation in a sense? I'm paraphrasing that verse. Why do you seek to complete it by the works of the law? These Galatians knew about Christ's death and his sacrifice for sin, yet they were clinging to the law. They wanted Jesus plus the law. They seem to think that they can improve upon the message of salvation. Paul here is saying that if you're going to look to the law to complete your salvation, you must keep it in every single way. You must obey it fully and completely if you trust it at all. But if you break it in one way, you've broken all of it. James, James tells us that in chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. Every single sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and also in the next. The curses that rang down from Mount Ebal echoed down through the quarters of time to us today. We deserve God's wrath and curse. We are covenant breakers. We are sinners. We are lawbreakers. Paul establishes this, this doctrine and this this. This firmly in, in Romans 3, he says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He says later in the same chapter, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 tells us the same thing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is the doctrine of what we call total depravity because it helps us realize the sinfulness of sin, how sinful we truly are. Now, the doctrine of total depravity does not say that we are as sinful as we possibly could be, but yet it says we are sinful in every part of our being, every part of our makeup. Sin has touched every part of us, our minds, our bodies, our wills, our heart, our desires, all are sinful and corrupt. And Paul is showing us this, and he tells us that if we rely on the works of the law, we are under a curse because we cannot fully obey the law. Paul here is weaving together three Old Testament passages and establishing it that we cannot, the Christian cannot trust in the law to save them. He says, first of all, that if you think you can rely on the works of the law, you'd better keep every single point. And by the way, you can't because you're sinful. And that applies to every man, woman, boy, and girl, with the exception, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ. All have sinned. And that's his first claim. 
his second claim, Paul then goes to a passage that he must have loved because he used it in really the, the, the thesis statement of his magnum opus, if you will, on salvation, the book of Romans, where he says in, in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, or as it is in the ESV, the righteous shall live by faith. It comes from Habakkuk 2, chapter, uh, verse 4. And in this small Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk is complaining to the Lord about the situation in Israel. The, the northern tribe has already been carried into captivity, and the Babylonians, in a sense, are kind of breathing down the necks of, the, of, of those that remain. And they're facing what seems like destruction. God has said in chapter 1 of Habakkuk that he will raise up the dreaded and fearsome Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to bring judgment upon Israel for their covenant disobedience. But, but Habakkuk complains. He's, he's the prophet, but he's complaining to God. And he's saying, in essence, yes, Lord, we, we do deserve your judgment, but what about these wicked Chaldeans? Don't they deserve your judgment too? And God responds to him in chapter 1, verse 13. He says... Um, or, or, I'm sorry, Habakkuk says to, to God, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And then God answers him in chapter 2. And his answer was not that Israel should try harder. He says, the just shall live by faith. It's not that obedience doesn't matter, but he's saying, trust in God's promises. Even when the wicked Chaldeans are, are right there at your borders, in a sense, or, or in a, in, to, they're, they're threatening you and, and causing fear in that way, he's saying, trust in the Lord, believe in my promises, the just shall live by faith. And Paul takes that forward to say to the Galatians and to us that no one is justified before God by the law. It's only through faith in Christ. He continues his reasoning there in, in verse 12. He says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, he pulls a text from the Old Testament, from uh, Leviticus. So if you were to look at Paul's statement here, what does he mean? The law is not of faith. Does that mean that we completely jettison the law? That that the law doesn't apply to us if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, we don't care about the law anymore? Well, we have to slow down and think about that. What is Paul saying? And we, we have to look, we have to consider that, and we have to say, well, that doesn't make sense. Because Paul speaks highly of obedience to the law. In places like Galatians 5 and Romans 8 and Romans 13 and the, the text that, that we, that's always our go-to text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then in verse 10 he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is Paul saying that works don't matter? That obedience to Christ's law doesn't matter? No, he's not saying that. Paul does not reject the law as a guiding principle of one's life and as a way of showing our love to the Savior who has redeemed us. Paul does not reject the law in that sense. But in another way, yes. Paul is saying that faith and works don't, do not go together. 
What Paul here is talking about is justification. How one is made right with God. The heresy that he's refuting in Galatia is the one that the Judaizers have have been trying to get the Galatians to believe and to practice that, that they should add to their salvation the works of the law, primarily circumcision. That should be added to the message of the gospel. But Paul's saying that you can't have it both ways. It's the one way or the other. One has likened this to an illustration of a man that's standing on on the dock and there's a boat there beside it and he's got one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock and the, and the boat starts slipping out into the water. He better make a decision. Either he jumps onto the dock or he jumps into the boat or he's going to end up in the water. John Calvin said in his commentary on this, he says, the law justifies him who fulfills all its commands, whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works, and rely on Christ alone to be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. You can't have it both ways. If you set out to obey the law, you better obey every single piece of it. But if you can't, you failed, and you will fail because you're a sinner. Therefore, you had better rely on the merit of another Here in verse 12, Paul quotes Leviticus 18, which highlights the principle that obedience brings life and disobedience brings death. And this serves to highlight what Paul has stressed up to this point, that we cannot fully obey. If we look to our own obedience, our own doing, we fail. Faith necessarily requires us to not trust in anything else to leave off of trusting in anything else. Faith is not doing. Faith is receiving. But if you're trusting in your own works, your own goodness, then it's sad to say, but you're doomed. You're cursed. And that brings us to our second point, where Paul gives us the bad news, but then he gives us the good news of redemption from the curse. Verse 13 brings hope into this situation. Paul carries forward that language of curse, and he says that, yes, we are under the curse of the law, but Christ has redeemed us from that curse. How has he done it? By becoming a curse. He says he uses that language of redemption, which, of course, comes from the marketplace. With, with, um, we, could, we could think about redeeming a, a coupon. You know, we, we turn it in and receive a discount. If a slave was redeemed, then the price was paid for them, maybe by a relative or one who wanted to purchase their freedom. First Peter speaks of the costly nature of our redemption, and I loved how Pastor Greco quoted this this morning as we partook of the Lord's Supper, that we were not ransomed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How did Christ redeem his children? He did it by becoming a curse. And Paul gives another Old Testament text, and he points out that the curse under the Old Testament, it says that cursed is everyone that should hang on a tree. This comes from Deuteronomy 21, and it gives the stipulations of if, if this happens, that how long you can leave a person on a tree um, and... and 
commentators tell us that as gruesome as this is, often people were executed and then they were placed upon the tree as, as just kind of a, a, a testimony of what it means to break God's covenant. To be a covenant breaker, that's what this person has done. It brought shame upon them, and it shows God's curse upon them for a capital crime. If you remember last week on a Sunday morning, Pastor Greco preached from from 2 Samuel 21, where the Gibeonites, the, the, the Israelites, had violated the covenant with the Gibeonites. And what did they do with the sons of Saul there? As representatives of that sin, they hanged them on a tree And that was a display of God's judgment upon covenant breakers. But if we think about this and what Jesus did for us, think about how offensive Christianity must have been to Jews. After all, the religion was based upon a man who was hung on a tree, who was a public display of God's curse upon him, even though he was sinless, Yet he bore our sins. Yet the apostles seemed to take special care to highlight that very fact. Acts 5, 30 and 31 says, when in, this, is, this is Peter speaking, The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They weren't embarrassed that their leader had been hung on a tree. 1 Peter Two says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And of course, Paul, who, who, who waxed eloquent in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ was cursed for us. He became a curse for us. And that language is there. Some have sought to purge the Bible of this idea of substitutionary atonement, that one would pay the penalty for another. But it's right there in our text. It was for us that Jesus died. Christ became a curse for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus became a curse for us. I hope by this time, as you think about it, you may be thinking, why? Why would a holy God do that? Why would he lay the curse of sin upon his son? We should wonder at the gracious love of God. And that's why I picked the songs that I did. And and I, I trust that as we contemplate this, we should sing along with the hymn writer who said, and can it be, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? He died for me, but it was me that caused his pain. It was me that pursued him to death by my sin. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? As we consider this and as we recognize the fact that it is only by God's grace that he has, he has chosen to save anyone, and we think about this idea of his gracious goodness and his kindness shown to us that, that he would call a people to himself, 
We think about this idea of, of election and, and seeking to understand the, God's ways and how he has worked in salvation. And, and so many times as people consider this, this sometimes challenging doctrine of election and, 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 and who has, for whom did Christ die, this question. And, and the question is often asked, why didn't God save anyone, everyone? But the question we really should ask is, why did God save anyone? And to make that more personal, why did he save me? Because if the Apostle Paul could say he's the chief of sinners, what does that say about you and me? Why did God choose to save you if you are in Christ? For we are under a curse. We justly deserve God's wrath and judgment. Let me speak to you. If, if you are here and outside of Christ, if you cannot call yourself a believer, if you cannot call yourself a child of God, the bad news is that you are under a curse. You are still under the power and penalty of sin. Sin brings a curse. You, like the rest of us, deserve God's judgment. But the glorious good news of the Gospel is that that curse was laid upon Christ. He became a curse for us. And if you do not know Him, I beg of you, cry out to Him tonight. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. There is no better time than now to cry out and to seek God in faith. We have to wonder, why should we, who are not even the children of Abraham... We are lost, dead in our sins. We're in rebellion against the God who made us. Why should we be redeemed? Well, of course, it is all of grace. It is all of God's mercy. It is to the praise of His glorious grace, it says in Ephesians 1. Christ has taken our curse. He has become a curse so that in Jesus we can enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham. The blessing that God promise to Abraham. You can read about it. We'll be reading about it as we read through the book of Genesis. It, it is to be his God, not just the God, but to be our God and, and that we would be his people. He's promised to bless us in Christ. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. He's promised to supply our every need. Here's our father and he cares for us as a, as a loving father should care for his children. He has given us his spirit, it says here, to help us, to guide us, to direct us and to, and to assure us of God's love for us. And this is good news. This is, this is beyond good news. It's the best news you could ever consider. Martin Luther called this the fortunate exchange. For the Lord Jesus Christ has taken the penalty of our sins, the curse that is rightly upon sin, Jesus took upon himself. And in exchange for that, we are given His perfect righteousness. For Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. His righteousness is credited to us. Sin condemns us. Sin curses us. Sin damns us. But Jesus obeyed God's law. He never sinned. And in this exchange, this fortunate exchange, as Luther called it, His righteousness is credited to us and our sin is laid on Him. Luther said, what is ours because becomes His, and what is His becomes ours. That's why we call it the gospel, because that means good news. And you might be asking, if you're outside of Christ, okay, 
this sounds like a pretty good deal. What do I have to do to get in on this deal? Well, if you say that, if you think there's something you have to do, I don't think you've been listening to the sermon thus far, because it's not about what you do. There's two little words at the end of verse 14 where it says, the whole phrase is, so that we might receive the promise spirit through faith. It is through faith. It's not what you do. It's what you believe and where you place your trust. Faith, as has often been said, is the open hand that receives salvation from the Lord. Faith is receiving the promises of God. The promise that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Saving faith is more than just believing in God. It is accepting His promises as yours. It's trusting in His accomplished work for sinners. It's saying and then believing that Jesus died for me. Now, I know sometimes even children, covenant children, struggle with this concept about how, how do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know if I'm really in Christ? How do I know if I have enough faith? Well, let me tell you, young people and old people alike, it's not about how much faith you have. It's about what that faith is in. If you are trusting in the work that Jesus Christ did, and you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Him, if you have, as our membership questions ask, received and resting in Him alone for salvation, I can tell you on the authority of God's Word that you are saved, that you are a child of God, because that's what it says. That's what God's Word says. All other religions say, do this and you'll earn salvation. Be kind and you will maybe gain a higher spiritual plane. Do this and you can make it to heaven. But only Christianity says, done. The work is finished. When Jesus died upon the cross, his final words were, it is finished. And of course, that didn't mean that his life was over. But, but, the, but the plan of salvation had been accomplished he had done what he came to do, and the salvation for his children was accomplished and done. And you can trust in his accomplished work. You must have faith, but it's not about having faith in faith or having faith in yourself or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what, that's what Paul is trying to tell us not to do. It's about recognizing that Christ's death, his bearing the curse, his hanging on the tree, his taking the penalty of sin upon himself, his drinking the full cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs, where he consumed God's wrath for his children. If you trust in that, that's what it is. That's the faith you need. That's the faith you need in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his accomplished work. And as Jesus died upon the cross, the debt of our sin was paid in full. And that's where we must place our hope. That's where Paul was saying the Galatians need to place their hope. And this promise is our only hope. Let me ask you, is that where your hope lies tonight? Let us pray.